Uh, tonight's topic is resurrection, and I was thinking, just to, as a way to get started, that resurrection is really not a topic that is limited to Kabbalah. The idea of resurrection, according to the Talmud, is one of the basic central tenets of Jewish belief, of Jewish theology and ideology. Now, how, why do I say that it's such a central tenet of Judaism? Well, first of all, it's included in the 13 Principles of faith, the idea of resurrection. Now, it's not included directly, it's indirectly included. Uh, but the Talmud, uh, when the Talmud delineates the lists of beliefs that are absolutely necessary for Jews to have, one of the beliefs is belief in resurrection. It says the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 90a, uh, all of Israel, call Israel, all of Israel is a portion of the world to come. And parenthetically, as a general rule, the notion of having a portion of the world to come is used universally in Jewish literature to mean success in life. If someone has the merits to be eligible for Olam Haba, then they are what's called a tzaddik, and they have fulfilled their life mission, and now they can move on successfully in the next world. And the Talmud says, there are all of Israel's a portion of the world to come. If you're Jewish, by default, you're granted eligibility. Uh, as an aside, even if you're not Jewish but you're righteous, you also have eligibility. And that's a difference that we have between our religion and other religions. You don't need to be Jewish to be good. You don't need to be Jewish to be righteous or meritorious. And you don't need to be Jewish to have a portion in Olam Haba. And as Jews, we begin life with entry. Unless we know otherwise, by default, Jews have a portion of the world to come. Unless we do one of several things or believe or don't believe one of several things. And thus, this list is really important because we want to make sure that we're not on that list of people who lose their portion in the world to come. Because if we lose the portion of the world to come, that renders our life here a failure. Because life here as a corridor for the next world, says the Mishnah in chapters of their fathers. This world is a corridor, a hallway to next world. We have to prepare in this world to achieve life in next world. And indeed, that's logical. None of us here believe that we're going to live past 150. Even with new technology, maybe, we could pass, maybe we'll hit 150, but probably not 160, right? So we're all going to die. If we're all going to die, then in absolute terms, life over here has a shelf life, right? If we cannot... Yeah, maybe you'll live till 150, but you're certainly not going to live to 200 or 300, right? So we're all going to die. And thus, investments that we make in our life in its current iteration are guaranteed to go back to zero. Because when you're dead, well, what value do you have with your Corvette and your fancy house in Malibu? It really, it really doesn't help you very much. It helps you maybe till then, but it, there's a ticking clock somewhere that's, you know, that's just, it, there's a shelf life, and it's slowly, your life over here is depleting. But we say, we're living for Lama Ba, for the next world. And thus, our life here is to prepare ourselves to gain entry and eligibility to Lama Ba. You gain entry and eligibility to Lama Ba, to the next world, you're a success. However, there are certain activities and certain beliefs that would, uh, would, uh, would, would render us ineligible to enter says the Talmud. What are those beliefs? So number one, someone who does not believe in resurrection. Number two, someone who does not believe in the divinity of the Torah. Those are the two major ones. So 
I, I just think our topic really matters in a very practical way because we're instructed in the Torah to believe in resurrection because if we don't believe in resurrection, well, we're lacking something very f- basic and fundamental about our theological kind of repertoire and arsenal that would be a huge problem for us if we don't have it. So just as a, just as a way of introduction, we could say very clearly that this topic is not merely one of grandiose ideas of the esoteric. It's not just the idea of Kabbalah. It's a very practical idea, the idea of coming, of resurrection. Now, that being said, I want to try to understand what it is. This is, this is a little bit of a critical. So we're alive here, right? We're, everyone's alive, right? We're alive. Uh, we all know we're all going to die. And resurrection means coming back to life, right? That's the way we understand it, right? Simple. So we're alive now. Body, soul merge together. Death is separation of the two in some way or another. Let's not get into the particulars. What happens to the body? The body's put in the ground. Right? What happens to the body after it's put in the ground? It starts to decompose. That we know. These, this is fact. It's not comfortable to talk about, but it's true. We all know it. The soul. Well, the soul is not destroyed at death, but it's kind of, it's in, it's in the air. It's kind of floating, I would say maybe. It's floating. I don't know. Where is it? It's floating. It's not in the body. It's somewhere out of the body. Fair? Fair. Okay. So the soul and body are separated. And we believe, or we have to believe, that these two are going to, once again, come together. And that's resurrection. So we're alive. We'll be dead and we'll be alive again. So far, so good? Yeah? Makes sense? Makes sense. Uh, but how does that work? What's the What's the model? What's the paradigm? It's just... We're alive, we're dead, we're back alive in the same exact way. It's just a restart button. Do we die again? Is it just life once again as a baby? How do we come back? What about the notion of reincarnation? So you've had multiple bodies over the 1,500-year course of your, of your soul. Suppose you've lived 10 times, you have multiple bodies, so which one of them gets married to the soul once again? There's a lot of things that are a little bit unclear, won't you say? Uh, and what's, what's the purpose of being put back to, to life? If someone fulfills their purpose in this world, who needs resurrection? We're done. We fulfilled our purpose. Why do we need to come back again and relive life over here, body and soul, married together again? It means the whole, the whole premise that we started here is that we have to believe in res- res- resurrection of the dead, because otherwise, you have no Olam Abba. Well, Olam Abba is a spiritual world. And suppose you dutifully fulfill your responsibilities here, you're good. Why do you need to come? Who wants to come back here and have a body and soul again? What's, what, what's the whole idea behind it? So this is, I think, a few questions to open up the discussion. Now, I want to just establish... Uh, a little bit, give a, uh, the first step in trying to, uh, you know, this, uh, take apart, so to speak, uh, the various elements of our question. What is Olam Abba? What is Tchias Amesim, Resurrection of the Dead? How are they related? What's the purpose of it all? There's a lot of questions here. Now, the Talmud tells us that if we, if we, do not believe in resurrection of the dead, we do not merit to Olam Haba. Why? 
says the Talmud, because if you do not believe in resurrection of the dead, you do not merit resurrection of the dead. And this is, I think, the first little insight and window into understanding our very complex topic. The Talmud says, just, I'll say it slowly, Olam Haba, you don't get Olam Haba if you don't believe in resurrection of the dead. Why? Because if you don't believe in resurrection of the dead, you don't get resurrection of the dead. That's what it says. Okay? So to me, what this did is it bridged two subjects together. On one hand, we have Olam Haba, a future world, a world of souls. On the other hand, we have resurrection of the dead. Says the Talmud, they are one and the same. And it says quite simply, because if someone says, I don't believe in resurrection of the dead, they don't get resurrection of the dead, which we have described and the Mishnah has described as Olam Haba. Thus, just initially, when we build this here from the bottom up, thus, if you don't believe in resurrection of the dead, says the Talmud, Olam Haba, this other world, you don't get reborn to it. It's almost as if there's another world and the other world we call Olam Haba. To enter that world, you have to be reborn again, body and soul fused together. That's called the initial rebirth of humans for the next world is what we call resurrection of the dead. Thus, those two are interlinked. If you don't believe in resurrection of the dead, well, you're removing yourself. You're disavowing resurrection of the dead. You don't believe in it. Why should you have a portion in it, right? You're opting out. You want to opt out? You could opt out and you're out and thus you lose your eligibility. But this is, I think, a, a tremendous insight and all the commentators explain this point. Resurrection of the dead, when someone comes back to life, what's that? What's the point of coming back to life? Well, we already lived life. We're fulfilled life. Now we're, we're on to bigger and better things. Well, the answer is, Coming back to life is the description of the beginning of this other world. Olamaba, this other world that we're trying to aim for, the initiation phase of that is what's called resurrection of the dead. Thus, if someone doesn't want to have resurrection of the dead for themselves, they don't have Olamaba because that's the only entrance. It's almost as if there's a door to Olamaba. What's that door? Resurrection. Okay, now let's dispel uh, some misconceptions. This is where it gets interesting. The Talmud records a debate and a discussion that happened about 1,800 years ago. The debate and discussion is between two titans. Titan number one is Rabbi Judah the Prince. Rabbi Judah the Prince was the leader of the Jewish people at the end of the second century. He was born about the year 135, 136 of the Common Era. He died about the year 215, 217. He is a great, 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 great grandson of, I think, three greats of Hillel. He is the Nasi. He's the leader of the Jewish people. And he's very famous because he was the one who was the architect of the Mishnah. And he had a colleague and a friend who is known, the other individual, the other titan, is Antoninus, who, according to most, is Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was the Roman emperor from the year 161 to 180. And they overlapped. Their regimes overlapped. One of them is the leader of the Jews. One of them is the leader of the Romans. And they were friendly. 
And the Talmud records a whole series of dialogues and debates and narratives that they had between the two about these very interesting esoteric topics. And one of them is regarding our subject. And the Talmud tells us, again from Sanhedrin, page 91a in the bottom, that Antoninus asked Rabbi Judah the Prince the following question. If you were to ask this question nowadays, we'd say, you should be a good accountant, because this is a great loophole that he devised. What's his loophole? He says, I have a way to exonerate people from judgment. We believe that life has consequences. You do mitzvos, you get reward. You do sins, you get punishment. That's a belief that we have, a universal belief. I have a way out. I have a solution. I have a loophole. What's my loophole? The Almighty says, okay, someone sinned. So some, the Almighty doesn't judge us while we're alive, right? Has the Almighty judged any human that we know? No. It's judgments after you're dead, right? Right? Obviously, right? Correct? Am I making sense here? So someone dies. They put the body in the ground. They put the souls floating around. And the Almighty comes to bring the person to judgment. So who does he bring to judgment? The body or the soul? The soul. Okay, so it says, says Antoninus, listen to this. I have a solution. Listen to my loophole. If the body comes, if the Almighty, if, if God comes to the soul and says, why did you sin? The soul said, me? I didn't sin. It was the body that sinned. Do you know why? I'll prove it to you. Ever since we've been separated, I haven't sinned even once. It must be, it's the body that sinned. So the mighty goes to the body and says, why did you sin? The mighty says, me? I'm like, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm interred in the ground. I'm like a stone. I'm useless. How could I have sinned? So either one, each one of them will push the blame on the other one. And none of them can ever be judged. That's my loophole, says Antoninus. How could the Almighty ever give judgment? Because the body and the soul are separated, and each one of them could deflect the blame on the other. That's his preposition. So Rabbi Judah, this prince, responds as follows. Suppose you have a king that has a beautiful orchard full of fruits. And the king wants to guard the fruits, so he hires several guards to be stationed there to guard the fruits. One of the guards is blind. One of the guards is, a, is lame, is a cripple. And he puts them both there to watch, to watch the fruits. And they're sitting there watching the fruits, and the fruits are very tantalizing and very delicious and very luscious and very alluring. So the lame guard who's who could see, he tells the other one, he says, I, I see beautiful fruits, but I can't reach them because I'm lame. And the blind guard says, oh, you see beautiful fruits? I, I'm in the mood of them as well. So they make a deal. The blind guard gives the lame guard a piggyback ride, and he's directing him, make a left, make a right, watch out, there's a branch there. And eventually they grab the fruits and they start eating <clears throat> the fruits. And before you know it, they finished all the fruits. All the fruits are depleted. And they go, and they're sitting on the grass, and the king comes back and says, where are my fruits? I hired two guards. So the lame guard says, it wasn't me. Look at me. I'm lame. How could I possibly have reached that? I can I just hobble on my feet, on my, on my knees. And the blind guard says, I couldn't possibly have eaten them. It must have been the other guy, because look at me. I'm blind. I'll walk into the, I'll start walking into trees. I'll, obviously, it was the other guy. 
So what did the king do? The king took the blind guard, once again put the cripple on top of him, and he judged them as if they were one person. So too, says Rabbi Judah the prince, the Almighty is going to take the soul and once again throw it in the body and judge the human as one person. Indeed, you're right. If the body and soul are separated, you can't judge either one of them. But the Almighty in the future is going to put body and soul together and judge them as one. That's what the Talmud says. Now I want to make it abundantly clear, and I'm going to prove it to you, and I'm willing to debate it if, you, if you're interested, that this is not resurrection of the dead. This is a description of, lo- of body and soul being morphed again together. So perhaps that's a very simplistic notion of resurrection, right? You were, you were alive, now you're dead, now you're back alive again. Body and soul once again are together. But there's several indications that this is not what's being described with resurrection. First of all, we said earlier that resurrection is a door that opens to Olam Haba. It's about reward. Here, in the model of Rabbi Judah the Prince, the two, ju- the two guards, it's not about reward, it's about judgment. Judgment seems to be negative, not positive. That's number one. Number two, we mentioned that the Mishnah tells us that Olam Haba is something that all Jews have by default. Why? Because we're all righteous. And that's implied that who merits Olam Haba, who enters that other world, it's righteous people. In this episode... It's not about righteous people that need to be judged. It's everyone that needs to be judged. And all the more so, people that are not righteous need to be judged because they ate more of the fruits in the proverbial uh, uh, orchard. Clearly, what we're describing here in this story of Rabbi Judah the Prince of Antoninus is not the resurrection that we are have been talking about. And this is why it gets very confusing. Because it seems like resurrection, as in body and soul, once again being reunited, that's not what we're really shooting for. That's not the, the gateway to Olam Haba. That's not the big idea that we're going to be discussing tonight. That is merely a means to judge people. Because you know why? Body and soul separate, you can't judge them. You want to judge them? You take the body, you take the soul, you once again morph them, fuse them together, and you could judge them the same exact way they were when they sinned. Just like when they sinned, it was a blind person carrying a lame person. So too, when they're judged, it's the exact same way. A blind person carrying a lame person. In our example, we sin as a body and soul. We'll we'll be judged as a body and soul together, a human. What's clear from the sources is that Olam Haba and the door that enters to Olam Haba is not just recreation of our existence here. It's not just the body is a host to the soul. It's much more sophisticated than that. It's an entirely different paradigm. It's a different human. It's not just, we have a body, we have a soul, those two are fused together. It's in fact, it's the opposite. 
Whereas in this world, the way we are right now, we have a body and soul. Which one of them is dominant? The body is much more dominant. The body is the host. The soul is within the body. It's blanketed by the body. The body is dominant. And because that's just the way the Almighty made it. That the body, you feel, if, if, if you feel pain, it's your body's pain. It's not your soul's pain. Right? You're hungry. Your body's hungry. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but what's clear, the sources indicate that the soul is relegated to searching the inner chambers of someone's innards. What that means is, according to the commentaries, that the soul, while it's more vital to our existence, because it gives life to the body, our consciousness is not our soul. Our consciousness is our body. Our instincts are our body. Our body is dominant and our soul is there to give life to the body. And our job is to unearth its powers, but it's not the predominant force in our lives. Olam haba, it's the exact opposite. We're talking about a different world. It's not just body and soul as a matter of convenience are once again uh, reunited. It's an entire recreation of life wherein the paradigm is flipped around, where the soul is dominant and the body is just merely there as a vessel. Almost as if, almost as if, suppose I said to you, well, you, you know, you're wearing a jacket or a sweater, right? The sweater, well, that's something you like, you want it to keep in good shape, but it's certainly not who you are. It's not your identity, right? It's, you, you are you. The sweater is just there that you need for convenience. In Olamaba, your body is a sweater for your soul. That's all it is. It's garb. It's not who you are. You don't need to tend. If your if your if your sweater needs breakfast, do you feed it? No. That's it, that's insane, right? If body is just clothing for the soul, then it's just there. You don't even think about it. The whole question that we asked earlier. Well, suppose I have multiple bodies, and which one am I then? Are they going to get for Olamaba? Which one am I going to be reunited with? It's like as silly as asking which clothing will I be wearing? Will I be wearing uh, the, my pajamas? Will I be wearing my work clothing? Was it, is it casual Friday? That's a silly question to ask. That's not who you are. Olam Haba is a world where you're a soul that just happens to have a body. In fact, the Talmud tells us that the needs of the body are not even addressed. You don't eat, you don't drink, you don't sleep. Those are not factors in this world. You're a soul and you just happen to have a body, but just like in this world, people can live their whole lives without noticing or recognizing and being cognizant and aware of the fact that they have a soul. In Olam Abba, people could live their entire lives without even recognizing that they have a body. Now to us, we have such a body-first centric approach. To us, we're worried, well, you're gonna have a, which, what kind of body you're gonna have? Which body? What's the body? What's the body? Right? I'm gonna have the old body. I hope I won't have my wrinkles, right? I don't want my wrinkles. I want that. I want to be a young body, right? That, that, that whole question is a result of our attitude that we have here, our lenses that we have in this world where we're so, we, we identify as a body. You identify as a body, so you're thinking about your body for Lama Ba. But if your body is just a sweater, you don't even think about it's, it as being essential to you, that question just flies away. If you're a soul first and you just happen to have a body, it's totally incidental to your identity. Well, that's an entire new recreation of man, when the Talmud is discussing a way around this loophole, how do you give judgment to body and soul? They're separate, right? How could you possibly pin one of them down? They're different. Each one of them could deflect. So says the Omani, well, we're just going to recreate the status that it was prior. They sin body and soul together. We're putting them back together, body and soul together. 
What's clear is that's not a description of resurrection. That's not a new recreation of man where the soul is the dominant force. That is merely a redoing of life the way it currently exists in this world. And that's why it's for everyone. It's not for tzaddikim. Resurrection of the dead is the gateway to this other world where the soul is our identity, the body is totally incidental, and the way we get there is through a process called resurrection. Resurrection is coming back to life, but not merely coming back to life the way we are now. It's coming back to life with the uh, with the realities in exact opposition. Our soul is who we are, and the body just happens to be there, and we may not even notice it. How does this work? So the Talmud says some scary things, like terrifying, because it's describing it, and it's clear, but you kind of have to explicate it. You have to really understand it. The Talmud records a series of discussions here. This is again from Sanhedrin on page 90 and 91. This is where most of the sources are. And it describes a conversation that happened between Caesar and Rabban Gamliel. Which Caesar this is, it's hard to know. Uh, it's probably one of the Caesars in, uh, it's, might have been, it might have been Vespasian or Titus. Probably one of those two. Because Rabban Gamliel was the head of the Jewish people after the destruction of the Second Temple in the, in the 70s. So Rabbi Gamliel and the Caesar was ha- were having a conversation. This was common. Rabbi Gamliel, by the way, just for reference, Rabbi Judah the Prince, his, let's do the math here, his great-grandfather, Rabbi Gamliel, because they were all the families of the Nasi, of the pr- uh, princes of Israel. They were the official political leaders of the Jewish people. And therefore, it's very quite common for them to have conversations with the Caesar, just like Rabbi Judah the Prince had a conversation with Antoninus, his great-grandfather, Rabbi Gamliel, is having a conversation with the Caesar of his day. And they're having a conversation about resurrection, and it's apparent that this was a fascinating concept to the Romans in yesteryear, just like it's a very fascinating concept to us today. And he asks him a question, it seems like it's a simplistic question, and it seems like it's a, it's a simplistic answer. But when you actually uh, you know, flesh it out, there's something dramatic here. He says like this, You guys say you believe that the dead people are coming back to life. And he says, well, look at the dead people. It's just you dig up a grave and all you have is dust. It's earth. How could earth live? Earth is inanimate. That's his question. Now, the daughter of Caesar interjected, and she said, Rabbi you don't answer this. Rabbi, I'll answer this. And she says like this. She says, suppose you had two contractors in a city, two people that were building homes, and one of them was building homes out of water, whereas the other one was building homes out of cement. Which one of them would be more impressive? She asked her father. You have two contractors. One of them says, I could build a whole house out of cement. Mazel tov, right? That's great. Right? That's what contractors do. But suppose you had a contractor who builds houses out of water. And it's a firm, sturdy house. Which one of them is more impressive? So obviously, the Caesar says, well, the one who builds houses out of water, that's much more impressive. So his daughter tells him like this. How are humans created here? Look around, right? All the humans that we see in our world. We're, we're all created out of water, out of, uh, you know, the primordial biological, 
material, which is very insignificant. It's a little bit of water, a little drop of water. If God can create people out of water, certainly he can create people out of earth, out of, uh, out of more kind of substantial material. That's what she, she tells him. Now, it seems like it's a very clever answer to a little bit of a tricky question. Uh, but if you actually think about it, what, what is she saying? What she's saying, and the Talmud records it, obviously the Talmud agrees with what she's saying. What she's saying is that in this world, people are created out of water. In the next world, when people are res- resurrection of the dead, it's not the same kind of creation. It's not just a human body, soul, once again are coming back together as a matter of convenience. It's an entirely new paradigm of creation. It's a new, it's creation out of earth, out of dust. And if you want to see what a human like that is created out of, you would, can say, well, let's look at humans. I know what humans are. Every human that you know, if you look at the serial number, it turns out it's a variety of created out of water, right? We're at, that's how we all come. In Alamaba, they're created not out of water, out of dust, out of earth. That's a different kind of creation. Now, who else do we know that was created out of dust? Booyah, Adam. Adam, if you want to have an insight, what does it look like? Someone Lama Ba? You have to study the Adam story. Adam was initially created out of dust, and then the Almighty gave him a soul. And if you examine that story, and I don't know if it's been discussed in this series, but Adam is always presented as the model. Adam, before this, before he sinned, he was a model of what the apex of human greatness is because Adam was someone who did not have evil within. He did not have what we call the Yetzirah. Therefore, his soul was unadulterated, uninhibited, untethered, and totally unleashed. That's what his soul was. And therefore, the Talmud describes he was able to, well, Torah describes that he was able to name all the animals. How do you name all the animals? Well, he, was, he had tremendous intellect that was not inhibited by physicality. The Talmud also says that he had high levels of prophecy to be able to see future generations. He was able to see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. He didn't have the same limitations that we have in our three-dimensional world. He lived in a higher dimension. Thus, when the Talmud tells us, just kind of off to the side, so to speak, in this world they're created out of water, next world created out out of dust, that really should ring a bell in our heads. This is akin to Adam. It's an entirely new recreation of man, a new paradigm that's not similar to just, oh, just bringing us back to the way we are today. Now, I want to take this a step further because we've already described this is the goal of man, right? To get to Lama Ba and to go through this process of, of resurrection. Well, how do we do it? How do we make sure that we're eligible? What can we do uh, to ensure that we are meritorious to indeed be worthy of this process. And indeed, how does this process even work? What about, how does this resurrection, how does resurrection even work? It's not even clear. We just, we're created out of earth. What what, what comes out of earth? How does this, how does this really work? I want to take you guys to another statement in the Talmud. This is a discussion with Cleopatra. Once again, a non-Jewish monarch is having a discussion with the great rabbi of the time, and she's discussing this question with Rabbi Meir. 
And she starts off with a bit of a conciliatory tone. And she says, well, I agree, dead people are coming back to life. But my question is, when they come back to life, are they naked or are they clothed? That's her question. And he responds to her as follows. He tells her, I want to look at a, a, what's called in fancy Latin a a fortiori argument, which in English means an analogy based upon something which is somewhat similar. So what's, it, what's his analogy? Will the humans come back clothed? And he describes it as a planting of a wheat. You plant a wheat kernel in the ground. You plant it uh, just as a seed. When it emerges, there's many layers of chaff on top of it. So you plant some, they plant the seed devoid of clothing. But when it emerges, it has lots of layers of clothing on it. So if you plant a seed with no clothing and it comes out with clothing, well, if you plant the human with clothing, how much more so will he emerge, he or she emerge with clothing as well? What are these, when you ever plant a human with clothing, who does that? That's death and burial. We know that there's burial shrouds, which are clothing for a dead person. You put that into the ground. What you're essentially doing, says the Talmud, is you're burying a seed in the ground. Now, this is a major insight. For us, we look at death as the end of life. Correct? That's, that's it. We're done. Put in the ground. According to the Talmud, what we're actually doing is not discarding a useless body. What we're actually doing is planting a seed in the ground that will emerge with the resurrection of the dead. This is a tremendous insight that your life here, our life here today, is one of preparing our quote-unquote seed, which is our body, for its insertion into the ground and its ultimate emergial, or emergial, emerging, uh, emergence, thank you, ultimate emergence with resurrection of the dead. Let's take, let's take, let's take, let's break that down. When you plant a seed in the ground, you plant an apple seed, you'll have apple trees. You plant an orange seed, you'll have orange trees. You plant a wheat, you'll have wheat. When we described resurrection of the dead as an entirely new paradigm where the soul is dominant and the body is just there, if that's what we want to emerge with Olam Haba, we have to make sure that we are a seed that is congruent to that. If we make ourselves into a seed when we die, that is entirely focused on maximizing our situation in this world, then that's what will emerge with when it's planted and it comes to fruition. Thus, when we say, how do we make sure that we earn a portion in Olam Haba? We do that by our life here right now. Well, what about our life here right now? We want to make that we are dominant in our soul and uh, less so in our body 
by doing, by dropping that seed into the ground, that is indeed what will emerge. So there's, 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 there's no, there's no shtick here. Death, according to the Talmud, in light of this uh, discussion, is nothing more than the planting of the seed in the ground, a kernel that will eventually grow into its full, in its full potential. Now you drop a little seed in the ground, the tiny little seed can emerge as a whole huge tree. Thus, what we're trying to make sure is that we have at least the kernel of the other world in our life here already. We want to make sure that in our life here, in our priorities, in our decisions, in our values, we value olam haba, living for the spiritual world, prioritization of our soul, and, well, certainly respect to our body. Have a kernel of that to be able to deposit into the ground when we die that indeed will emerge when the uh, time for resurrection comes. If we don't have that, then we won't, we'll, whatever we put in the ground, precisely the seed that we select, that's exactly what will emerge. Just like you drop an orange seed in the ground, you cannot possibly expect kiwis to emerge. It's insane. You wanna, you wanna emerge for chiasa mason, for resurrection of the dead, as someone who's ready to enter into this gateway, into this world called Alam Abba, in this world where soul is who we are and body is just there. It's a sweater, it's a jacket, it's ancillary entirely to our life. We have to make sure that we become that seed while we are here. If you look at every mitzvah, mitzvahs are ways to fashion oneself into a seed that prioritizes the spiritual and deprioritizes the physical. You ask the question, Rabbi, does God really care if we eat cheeseburgers? That's a question I hear all the time. The answer is, maybe yes, maybe no. But the question is not about God. The God mitzvahs for you, not for God. God doesn't need your mitzvahs. God is perfect without your mitzvahs. You need to deprioritize your body and thus prioritize your soul in its stead because you want to have a portion in Olam Abba. You don't want, you want to make sure that seed that emerges at the correct time is one that it's indeed the correct kind of seed for that kind of yield. You cannot drop one seed and expect something else to emerge. If we want to emerge in Olam Abba as soul dominant and body just there, we have to make that seed when we insert it and insert it into the ground. Thus, in a weird way, we could say that all of life really is with a focus towards the future, towards Olam Haba, but really towards our death, which is the beginning of almost the next life. It's the next seed, it's the seed that will emerge when the time for resurrection and the, uh, the entrance and the gateway to that world. And that's a vastly different idea than just putting body and soul back together. It, it's, an, it's an entirely different realm. Yes, there is a notion of judgment. Judgment, you have to have body and soul because you can't judge body without soul or soul without body. That is true. And that's putting body and soul together. That's not resurrection of the dead. That's not this big grand idea. That's the culmination of life. It's a way to avoid the Antoninus' loophole. That's what it really is. And indeed, if you look at that particular piece of Talmud, this is a little bit uh, uh, parenthetically, if you look at that particular piece of Talmud, you'll notice that the exact words that it uses when Rabbi Judah the Prince is responding to Antoninus's loophole, he says, well, just like the, the, the king takes the blind, the lame, and puts them back together, so too the Almighty takes 
a soul and throws it back into the body. What's clear is that resurrection for, uh, for judgment is nothing more than putting a soul back in the body. It's, the body is still dominant. The body is still the host. And the soul is thrown in, in it just the way we are here today. Resurrection in the form of bringing to Lama that is a seed that we plant at death that will emerge hopefully to one that is ready for that world, is eligible for that world, is eligible for a model, for a paradigm where the soul is dominant. I want to take this a step further here. There's another piece of Talmud. This Talmud, again, is from Sanhedrin, two pages later, uh, 92, I think. And the Talmud is disturbed by a particular verse in Proverbs. Sorry, my sweater's getting a little hot. And the verse in Proverbs makes a bizarre connection between two very different, or at least seemingly, ostensibly different entities. The verse tells, it describes a grave and the narrow part of the womb. And it doesn't seem to really have a lot in common. What does a grave have to do with a narrow part of the womb? Seems like they, like those things should not at all. There should be no sentence where it has it contains those two, uh, those two nouns. And the Talmud says like this: Just like a womb, something goes in and something comes out. So too a grave, something goes in and something comes out. Number one. Number two. Just like a womb, the thing that goes in, it goes in uh, quietly, but it emerges with absolute wailing. So too, the grave that when you put the body in the ground, everyone's crying, it goes in with wailing. How much more so will it emerge with great fanfare and wailing? That's a reference to the shofar, this shofar that's going to be uh, at the time of resurrection. But here again, we see a very similar analogy between the seed in the ground that's going to emerge in whatever, in, in, a, in a full manifestation of the seed. And we have a connection between a womb, something goes in, something comes out, and a grave, something goes in, and something com- comes out. What we see here is that, we I mean, you know genetics, right? the particular kind of item that goes into the womb, something very similar to that genetically emerges. If you take the primordial biological matter that goes into the womb and you analyze it on a very microscopic level, you could take patterns in the genome and you should compare that to a a baby, a full-blown baby, that emerges nine months later. You could make that comparison. But if I showed you a tiny drop, a tiny sperm, and a baby, you would say, those things have nothing to do with each other. They're absolutely different. How could they possibly be any more different? But the truth is, if you just zero in far enough, if you zoom in as far as you could possibly go, and then a little more so, it's actually the same thing. One's potential, and one's actualized reality says the Talmud, this is exactly what putting in the grave is. 
When you put something in the grave, it's the seed that's going into the grave to marinate, so to speak, or to percolate uh, over time, to develop over time. Just like you put the seed into the womb, that doesn't take it out a day later, nothing really changed, maybe a little bit. The change happens right away, but it takes a while for it to develop. In this particular womb, in this place where it's being harbored, it is growing and developing uh, into what it eventually will become. So too, when we're put on the ground, we are developing into what we eventually will become. But if you try to compare what goes in and what comes out, they'll be entirely different. So, to the question we asked earlier, suppose someone has lots of different bodies and they go and they want to know which body they're coming back in when they, when they, for resurrection of the dead. Well, we said earlier that doesn't really make any sense. That's a question that's only born out of our perspective. We think about life as being just body and soul like we have today. Body is dominant. Therefore, it's a very important question. But what will emerge with resurrection of the dead is as incomparable to the way we are right now as a tiny drop of biological matter is to a full-blown wailing baby. They're not similar at all. They're entirely different uh, modality. They're, 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 they're different worlds. Yes, they're the same. You know, kind of theoretically they're the same. But one has been developed and developed and brought out in dramatic fashion. It's, it's, it's millions of times, billions of trillions of times more developed than... what? Do I, yeah, of course, whatever the seed is, that is going to be the replica. That, that, that's the... That's the DNA, quite literally, of what will emerge. But it's not comparable in any way. When we die, we're putting a little drop of spiritual DNA into the ground, which is exactly like the narrow part of the womb. It's, we're going into our grave. We're going into our place of hibernation and development. When we are reborn again, it, it's not in any way comparable to what entered, but it actually weirdly is, because precisely in the manner that we have prepared our seed, that is indeed what will emerge. Now, I, I want to just uh, just kind of uh, bring this full circle. In the example, the second example of a baby, you have the narrow part of the womb, you have the grave. What's also interesting is that if you were to try to take the example of the baby, right? So there's something that goes in to the womb, and something else emerges sometime later with, with lots of noise and fanfare. What's clear is, is that if you were to kind of just chart it out in the parallel, right? Death is being put into the ground, or the seed being placed into the womb, and birth is resurrection of the dead, rebirth. In that paradigm, in that example, what is life? Life that we're living right now. Well, that is the action that brings about the so to speak, or the process that brings about the insertion of the seed in the womb. Now, what does that mean? It means that this really shows the stark contrast of life. I would argue that the act of procreation is the most kind of polarized action that's possible in the world. On one hand, it could be an act of absolute recreation that really doesn't yield any lasting benefits. 
Conversely, it could be an act of tremendous procreation because you create one baby, that baby could have a hundred trillion descendants. Right? If you have seven children and all your seven children have seven children, within 200 years, you are over a million people. That's simple math, just back of the napkin mathematics. Uh, what about over 500 years? You're a billion, a billion people. That's not out of the realm of possibility. And almost the same act can really have dramatically different ramifications if you actually spell out all the permutations to the end. Thus, when we look at life, Life that we're living today. The people that are living for Olam the people who look at this world as a corridor, it's just a means to the end. Really what we're trying to live is a spiritual life. Really what we're trying to prioritize is our soul. The body is just a tool that we're using. Those people, they're able to yield a tremendous benefit when their proverbial baby comes back to life. Whereas the people that living for this world, just for this world... Well, then they go into the ground and they just die on entry. And they're not able to place that seed, so to speak, in the ground to emerge into some other new world uh, uh, and new life form that's going to live forever. And this is really the dramatic decision that we want to, we have to make in our lives. Are we going to live for an eternal purpose? For procreational purposes? Are we going to craft our seed in a way that will yield fantastic results? Or are we going to live for this world? And which is fine, but we have to also realize what are you giving up? Thus, says the Mishnah, if someone says, I don't believe in Chesamism, I don't believe in the Olam Abba, I'm not living for that. Okay, you don't get that. Why? Because you're obviously not living for that world. So what seed is going into the ground? What seed are you crafting that will emerge with the resurrection of the dead? A seed that doesn't believe in that. A seed is not, that's not focused on soul and, uh, or in favor of soul over body. If you're not, if that's what you put in the ground, that's what will emerge. That's the laws of agriculture. You, whatever you drop in the, whatever seed you drop in the ground, you can't expect a different tree to grow. Thus, our life is indeed, can be distilled, uh, quite simply, of course, into this model. We are trying to create a grand eternal legacy for ourselves. That legacy is actualized with the resurrection of the dead and the gateway to Ulam Haba. However, our actions today critically matter because they are the crafting of the seed that goes into the ground when we die. When we're told to become a tzaddik, to be righteous, in this context, what it means is to make yourself into a seed that when Ulam Haba rolls around, i.e. when it's actualized, when the seed emerges from the ground, it is one that favors soul over body. And thus, in the world of soul dominance, that is the eligibility requirements for entry. You look at all mitzvahs now. Let's look at mitzvahs. Just uh, just go back to mitzvahs, right? We have a hard time finding value in mitzvahs. A lot of themes are, oh, there's so many details, so much minutia. Why what does God, God really care? I'm not hurting anyone, right? It seems to be morally okay to do a lot of things the Torah says not to do. And that's true if you have a very narrow view of what mitzvahs are and what goals they have. If mitzvahs were just to have a moral society, you know how many mitzvahs we'd have? We'd have seven. That's called the seven Ohai laws. Mitzvahs are not just to generate a moral society. All you need is seven for that. The mitzvah, the goal of a mitzvah is to make a person into a seed that at death 
is eligible for rebirth of Tchias Amesim, i.e. A, a, a person, or at least the kernel of a person, that favors their soul, lives for the soul, identifies as a soul, prioritizes the soul, and, guess what, deprioritizes the body. Thus, any action, let's assume it's arbitrary, right? It doesn't help society. You eat cheeseburgers, you don't eat cheeseburgers, it doesn't matter to society. But, suppose someone says, here's a delicious, delectable cheeseburger. You can't eat it. Why? Because God told you not to eat it. Does God really care? No, let's assume God doesn't care. But what about you? Do you want to emerge in the soul world as someone whose body is on a lower level in priority in your life? You want to have entry into that world? Entry to that world? Well, you have to make sure that in this world, you make yourself into the seed of that future. Well, how do you do that? Prioritizing the soul, identifying with the soul, and deprioritizing and uh, uh, and even in a weird way, neglecting your body. Your body says, give me a cheeseburger, I want it delicious. You say, no. What happens? In the internal balance, your soul moves up a notch and your body is degraded a little bit. And that's not fun, it's not painful, we don't see immediate results. But when we have the grand vision of what we're shooting for, what we're aiming towards, we want to make ourselves an appropriate seed for this world, well, how do you do it? How do you come to that world? The exact same way you want to emerge is how you put it in. You know, it, now they have a lot of selection. There's a big, uh, you know, people who, who are, who get, uh, donations, sperm donation, egg donations. They want to craft a certain kind of kid, right? So they look at the donors and they take, well, I want blue eyes or brown eyes or this color hair or that height, right? That's what you do if you want to have a certain, you want to craft a certain child. And of course, there's moral questions about that. Let's leave that on the side. But if you want to have a kid with those qualities, that's the seed that you put. You want to emerge in Lama Ba, that's the seed you have to put. Well, how do you make yourself that seed? You do it by mitzvahs. Thus, I think if the takeaway that we have here is the importance of mitzvahs, then it's worth it, right? Because this is very practical. Mitzvahs now really take newfound meaning. Because a mitzvah is an activity that makes me more of a soul and less of a body. Well, that's, I'm on my way now to my goal of being the appropriate seed that's eligible for Olam Haba. Uh, that's one takeaway. Additionally, another takeaway is just this whole other model of life. And we're aware that there's really two resurrections of the dead. There's a resurrection that is just a matter of convenience to avoid the Antoninus loophole. And then there's an entirely new world, gateways to Olam Haba, which is a recreation of a human not made out of water, made out of earth, made cut from the same cloth as Adam, one whose soul is dominant, the body is merely a sweater, and a lot of the questions that we have of resurrection indeed go by the wayside.